Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. And today I'd like to start out by reminding you that there is a website behind the madness. It's called wealthformula.com, and it has all sorts of goodies on there, downloads that are useful, etc., etc., you can get a copy of my free book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth. You can also get that simply by texting 44222 and typing Wealth Formula, one word. Again, that's 44222, Wealth Formula, one word. And also, for those of you who are really into Wealth Formula and who want more, there is a course, there's a forum, there is bi-weekly mastermind calls. Uh, now there's a private private uh private facebook group and it's all part of uh your roadmap to real wealth this is available through uh check out this site wealthformularoadmap.com again it's wealthformularoadmap.com and if you want more wealth formula that's the way to get it the course is fantastic obviously we've talked about it before we've got Kevin Day we've got Ken McElroy Tom Wheelwright the real estate guys Christian Allen Dean Graziosi me even me and um and, and you know it's just a fantastic course to get you up to speed and then you've got this whole community and mastermind call thing don't miss it it's really cheap okay i have to tell you i just think it's compared to the amount of money I pay for stuff. This is not expensive. And um, I think it's really worthwhile. I think the calls alone, by the way, are probably uh, significant value. Um, You know, we had last week, I think we had Kevin Day. Uh, A couple weeks before that on our mastermind call, we had uh, Christian Allen really diving into wealth formula banking um, which, of course, you can check that out on wealthformulabanking.com. Uh, really just got granular with this stuff. And I think that's, you know, it's time to sort of get off the couch, get that lazy money, whip it into shape, and, um, you know, join the network. So uh, anyway, so as far as today, let's, uh, let's start talking about um, the theme of the day, uh, and, you know, let's start out back in high school. For me, I graduated in high school in 1992. So I'm a child of the, uh, you know, I'm a Generation X guy, Gen X. Uh, and I remember taking uh, my first political science course, I think it was during my senior year. And 
it was, um, you know, sort of during my senior slides. I wasn't reading much. I was kind of, you know, I'd already gotten into college. I didn't really care. And I think I took tried to take some tests without even, you know, reading anything. And I bombed in. It was because I didn't know the true meaning of the words conservative or liberal. You know, you know, up to this point, uh, I viewed these words as synonymous with Republican or Democrat. Of course, uh, I found out from the grade I got there that wasn't quite the same thing. Conservative, I learned, was someone who wanted, desired smaller government, less regulation, and emphasized the importance of individual civil liberties. I got the small government part right. That was the Republicans at the time, but the American Civil, but the American Civil Liberties Union was, uh, from everything I gathered on the news uh, at that time, an institution of the Democrats. So I was kind of confused of why that would be. I mean, somewhere along the line, uh, conservative in political slang became very different from what conservative by political definition actually meant. And if you, you know, with perspective, of course, since high school, gosh, 25, is that 25 years ago? Wow, I'm old. I guess with that perspective, it's not hard to understand uh, how that, that all changed, right? I mean, look at free trade, what we call free trade, you know, the kind of, NAFTA type of thing, the kind of, you know, no trade war, no tariffs kind of thing. It used to be the case back in my day that tariffs and trade wars were loathed by Republicans, right? They were loathed by them. But now Donald Trump is the champion of global isolationism, right? Now, regardless of what you think of Donald Trump, and again, this is not saying uh, the policy is right or wrong, but understand his ideology is not that of Ronald Reagan, who was, of course, the quintessential conservative icon of the 1980s. So with ideology in each party being as, I guess, fluid as it is, it seems odd to me that politicians aren't switching parties all the time, or maybe not, you know? I mean, how could they be part of, of a party that no longer represents their beliefs. Well, because they're politicians, right? And then it's all just, you know, it's it's like a big just thing about getting reelected, I guess. I don't know. You know, what's stranger to me about American politics these days that it, is that it's becoming more and more polarized. I mean, I really believe that most of this country, despite what you see in sound bites on cable television, is actually sort of center-right. I think there's actually some statistics to back that up, too. But the primary system, you know, the system where you put up the candidate, where they, you know, where the Democrats and the Republicans decide who they're going to put up for president, well, that brings in the candidates that cater to the most extreme elements on either side. And boy, are you going to see that in the Democratic Party next time around. For those of us standing rationally in the middle, though, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess that's a little political, right? Because if I'm sort of in the middle and the right, I'm, I'm being political. So I don't usually do that. 
But anyway, that's me. And if that gives us little in the way of, of politicians that accurately reflect our collective sentiments as a nation, you know, personally, I've grown uh, further in the direction of what is known as libertarian ideology. Now, uh, that's, that is an ideology. It's also a party. You know, my intent on this show, of course, is never to be uh, political. Um, you know, you should believe what you want to believe. Just think about it, please. But I, but I probably leaked out some of my sentiments in the past. Um, but rather than just sit there and, you know, keep this uh, uh, dirty little secret, I thought that the better approach might be to educate you on something that, that I really believe in, which is libertarian ideology. Now, when you listen to this, you may agree or you may disagree with the opinions, but you probably should listen to it. I mean, after all, everyone in Silicon Valley claims to be a libertarian these days, so you might as well know what the heck they mean, or at least what the heck they think they mean uh, that they're talking about. So, in true well-formula fashion, I went out and got a real authority on the topic to educate you. And not just any education, a Harvard education. When we come back, we're going to learn all about libertarianism uh, and the economy of lib. So when we come back, we're going to learn all about libertarianism and the economics of libertarianism from Harvard professor of economics, Jeffrey Myron. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. My guest today on Wealth Formula Podcast is Dr. Jeffrey Myron. Uh, Professor Myron is a senior lecturer, director of undergraduate studies, and director of graduate studies in the Department of Economics at Harvard. He's also director of economic studies at the Cato Institute, which, if you don't know, you should. It's a libertarian think tank. Uh, Dr. Myron's commentary um, on ec economic policy has appeared on CNN, CNN CNBC, MSNBC, NPR, Bloomberg, Fox, BBC, and dozens of other television, radio and print media around the world, and now including Wealth Formula podcast. Uh, his area of expertise is the economics of libertarianism, uh, which is certainly my favorite kind of economics. Uh, professor Myron, I, I'm going back between professor and doctor. I don't know what you prefer, but 
welcome to Jeff. Well, for, Jeff is good. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Nice to be here. Thank you. I wanted to start out uh, with what may sound like a, a sort of a simple question, uh, but one I think is worth asking because a lot of people, um, including myself, identify themselves as libertarian. And um, you offer a course, I know I, I read as a popular course at Harvard called A Libertarian Perspective on Economic and Social Policy. Um, so I want to ask you, because everybody runs around calling themselves libertarian, especially in Silicon Valley these days or San Francisco, uh, what is a libertarian? So I think in the simplest terms, libertarians want smaller governments. They want the government to focus on respect for individual liberties and rights. And when they say smaller government, many of them mean substantially smaller government. It doesn't come from a view that government is evil. It doesn't come from a view that markets and other private arrangements are perfect. It comes mainly from the view that governments, even when well-intentioned, tend to make things worse. The treatment is often worse than the disease. So even though private arrangements are not perfect, they're typically better than when governments try to fix those private arrangements and cause unintended consequences. Got it. So in terms of so let's talk about it in terms specifically about the what that looks like uh, in the economy. Let's 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 drive that way first. So it would mean that we would have vastly reduced expenditure at the federal level in particular, also at the state level it means either little or no spending on entitlement programs. It means far less regulation to a much greater degree in some areas than other, but overall far less regulation. Of course, if you have a much smaller government measured by expenditure, then you're going to have much lower taxes because you don't need to raise nearly as much revenue. Um, so it would look more like, say, the first uh, 50 or 100 years of the U.S. rather than the next 125 years. So how in, about in simple terms? Right. So how about okay? So then, so then that's sort of the uh, fiscal side of it. Now there's a you know there's the social aspect, um, the emphasis on this uh, you know uh, of more freedom, individual freedoms. Can you talk a little bit about some of uh, some of those things, some of the positions that the libertarians might have? Sure. So libertarians would be strong advocates of legalizing most or all drugs. They would be strong advocates of legalizing gay marriage. They're strong advocates of expanded legal immigration. Indeed, some advocate for literally open borders. Um, many libertarians, not exclusively, are advocates of uh, choice as opposed to being pro-choice rather than pro-life. Uh, in the criminal justice uh, arena, they have strong concerns that existing policies are enforced in very racially biased ways. Um, and so, they, again, are for much less government intervention with respect to people's individual decisions or um, interactions outside of strictly economic ones. Libertarians try to apply that respect for the individual and advocacy for small government consistently across all areas of government. Yeah. So uh, and this is what's interesting to me, because you're just, uh, you know, at this point, you're you're pretty much um, confirming why I identify myself as a libertarian. And what strikes me is very interesting is that uh, many people listening to this show out there are probably thinking, hey, I'm kind of a libertarian. You know, I like small government. I don't care what you do or who you marry. But the funny thing is, 
In our two-party system, neither side seems to reflect these particular principles, even though they seem like a natural marriage, freedom uh, freedom to do whatever you want uh, as long as you're not hurting somebody else and at the same time having small government. The Republican Party certainly moving farther and farther away from those libertarian elements. Why do you think this is? That's a puzzle for which I don't think I have a great answer. I guess what I would say, though, is that we sort of do have libertarian governments. Of course, not what libertarians would ideally like. We have a lot more government than we had 200 years ago. But to a first approximation, people can start businesses as they wish. They can work in whatever occupation they want, okay? subject to some silly occupational licensing regulation. But overall, they still have a lot of choice. Marry whom they want, practice religion that they want. Uh, taxes, while higher than libertarians want, are not so oppressive as to destroy the economy or anything like that. So compared to the long human history, people living in the United States, other rich democracies these days, and even many other countries around the world, do have lots and lots of freedom. So yes, it's too bad that we can't get the major parties to think more like libertarians. And yet, the fact that the public goes back and forth between the two parties, it doesn't ever seem to settle predominantly on one or predominantly on other. On the other, that often you see one house be Republican and the other house of Congress be uh, Democratic. Maybe that is reflecting the generally libertarian sort of sympathy that's that's fairly broad in the U.S. population. Yeah, and it, it, but it seems odd to me in, in some ways that the, the increase in polarization of the parties seems to be pulling away from that sentiment in the middle. Um, and given that, and given the fact that um, it seems to me, I, I mean, if I if you took a poll, and I don't know, you maybe you maybe you have some kind of an idea of this that that probably uh, the majority of the country probably would uh, feel fiscal conservatism, probably feel fairly progressive on on the uh, the uh, social side, and then you've got a ton of money involved with this, right? Everybody in Silicon Valley says they're <laughs> everybody right. says they're a libertarian, right? So right. why can't a libertarian candidate, why has a libertarian candidate uh, been unable to get some kind of traction or make some kind of legitimate run towards a presidency? So I think their libertarians could try to blame that fact that you just described well on a lot of things, on the impediments to becoming a, third, a viable third party, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the real reason is that libertarians they're kind of their own worst enemies. Yeah. We like to argue. We like to consider the extreme. So if we meet someone and we talk about drug policy, we manage to convince that person that maybe marijuana should be legal. We don't ever just kind of count the vic- that as a victory and shut up. We say, okay, now that I've convinced you that marijuana should be legal, let me convince you that heroin should be legal. <laughs> okay. Of course, you know, you lose a lot of support. Right, right. It's one thing to say the Medicare program is well-intentioned, but it's so expensive it's going to bankrupt the economy, so we need to cut it back a little bit. You could get a lot of people to accept that that's a rational position, but as soon as we convince people of that, then we turn around and say, but of course, we should actually just get rid of the entire Medicare program, (laughs) and that, of course, scares people and upsets people. So libertarians have not found their right spokesperson yet, someone who can be sort of faithful to the purity of libertarianism and the consistency, and yet present a message that's moderate enough that you could get a broad set of support. Yeah. And it's unfortunate because I think in some respects, again, the polarization of the party seems to be 
the perfect setup for, for it is. something like that to, to happen. So let's shift gears again uh, or a little bit here and, and, and talk a little bit about your, you know, put on your economics hat and mm-hmm. let's talk about free markets. So obviously free markets are a big part of the libertarian ethos and, um, you know, the belief that capitalism uh, is is a virtue and, 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 you know, the ability to let ultimately anybody succeed. Um, and as a child of immigrants who lived, you know, the quintessential American dream because my parents had the opportunity, I am, uh, I am you know, very much a capitalist with a capital C. But, uh, but a lot of people on the other side, you know, the, uh, you know, maybe a lot of the Bernie Sanders supporters, et cetera, they they're looking at the the mess that is uh, you know 2008 and the fallout behind that the massive debt that we've got these days and they say hey capitalism looks like it 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 failed it didn't seem to do so good what do you say to those people so i'd say a couple things first we had a bad situation in 2008 2009 but it's completely, it's at a minimum, highly incomplete to blame that on capitalism. Capitalists made some mistakes, but they were aided and abetted enormously by the government that was trying to promote private home ownership, by the government that was guaranteeing implicitly and explicitly uh, the liabilities of major financial intermediaries and the banks. There was a huge amount of government intervention that at a minimum contributed heavily to the fact that we had an excessive boom and then we had a significant bust. The second thing I'd say is that if you set aside a few people who are at the, really at the extremes, even the Bernie Sanders and the Elizabeth Warrens, I think, recognize that capitalism is good at producing the most stuff. If your only goal were to maximize the value of GDP per capita, how much we can produce, they would accept that with a little bit or modest amount of regulation, capitalism is quite good. But they don't like the way that the fruits of those labors, the way that that GDP gets divided up in a market economy. They want way more redistribution. So they're actually not socialists in the 1950s version of socialism, where government was owning the means of production. They are just massive redistributionists. Now, I understand their concern for the people who are unfortunate, but I think they're missing the fact that most of the inequitable differences in income come from government interfering and creating arbitrary winners and losers, government helping people with lots of excessive rules who are willing to be dishonest, get ahead relative to people who are more honest, government bailing out auto companies who made bad decisions or big banks who made bad decisions. So I think there is some common grounds for the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren wing and libertarians. It's just we agree there's some bad things. They want to fix it with more government. We think we can fix it better with less government. You know, Nomi Prince was on the show uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, and, and she's, uh, I don't know if you know, she's a uh, New York Times, uh, mm-hmm. one of the best-selling authors, but she's, uh, she was talking, uh, you know, she was a Wall Street insider and talked a lot about uh, the banks and sort of how that cartel works. And, um, you know, the, the, the point that she ultimately brought out was, you know, there was this repeal of Glass-Steagall. Uh, in the 90s that ultimately led to these banks, you know, taking really big risks, right? But presumably what you could say is, hey, if you were actually running like a a true capitalist society, like a a true capitalist economy, you would never have that situation set up because there would be no opportunity for a bailout. So presumably if you didn't have 
the 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 safety net of a bailout that you wouldn't in pure capitalism you wouldn't have had that problem exactly it's the implicit guarantee of the banks that in my view in libertarian view is the single biggest cause of the of the problems pure capitalism there's a famous line capitalism without uh, bankruptcy is like a religion without hell you have to have the risk that people are going to fail right. and fail significantly to discipline people to behave to not take excessive risks to not think that they're playing with someone else's money but the u.s government major governments around the world have been bailing out the financial sector for centuries and so of course the financial sector expects to be bailed out and they act accordingly. I heard this great conversation on NPR in the midst of the 2008 crisis. Some woman calls in and says, you know, I've been yelling at my husband for years that you guys are taking crazy risks. It's all going to come crashing down. Aren't we going to lose all our retirement? And isn't you're going to you're get fired, et cetera. And he said, nah, don't worry about it. If the crash happens, and you're right, it probably will. The Fed will come in and bail us out. And this was just sort of a random person who... I was relating exactly what libertarians are, are arguing. Yeah. Um, so I, I agree with exactly what you said. So tell me what's going on in your view in the economy right now. There is this idea that, you know, in, at least in the mainstream, that the economy is doing really well. And it seems to ignore some of the, uh, you know, some of the infrastructural problems going on. But what what worries you? if anything, about what's going on with the economy right now? The single thing that worries me the most is the buildup of debt for entitlements, the unfunded liabilities for Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid, and so on. Those are large, and they're growing, and they're growing at a rate significantly faster than we could plausibly expect the economy to grow. So they're getting big relative to the size of the economy. And if that keeps going, then, of course, they become the whole economy, and that can't possibly happen. So that's a huge concern. There, of course, are other significant concerns. If the current administration substantially restricts trade and other countries retaliate, that could indeed be seriously costly. And I think that the restrictions on immigration okay, are also extremely bad for the economy. I think immigration does a lot of good things, first of all, for the immigrants, but also for the native population, not just by bringing lower wages for certain types of of workers, but by making the economy vital, by introducing lots of competition, by generating new ideas, sources of innovation, um, and things like that. And so cutting off immigration, I think, is potentially a really bad thing for the economy as well. Let's talk a little bit about debt, because that's the, you know, that's something that a lot of people talk about. Now we're, we're what, $21, 22000000000000 trillion of debt. Let's, let me ask you a very simple question, which is, why does debt matter anyway? Can't we just inflate ourselves out of it? I mean, um, we can either deflate ourselves out of it at one level or tax ourselves out of it at one level, except if you do that, you're going to have other effects, which are probably going to crush the economy. So in order to inflate ourselves out of it, we would have to create a very high inflation rate. And that's probably going to have negative effects on the economy that mean we won't, while we're getting more revenue via the inflation tax, which is what the, you know, inflating it away does, we're getting reduced tax revenue from other sources. So the problem is actually getting worse in terms of the expenditure growing relative to the size of the economy. We tried to fix it with standard taxes, income taxes, corporate taxes, whatever. 
maybe we could raise those a moderate amount without having a major negative effect on the growth of the economy, but to raise taxes enough to pay for the debts that we've uh, taken on will slow the economy. And that just makes the problem even worse. So it's a serious problem. Oh, no. I, and, and, I, and I'm sorry if it's a little bit tongue in cheek about this, but it, I've heard people say, well, so what if we've got debt? We'll just have more debt. <laughs> well, I would ask such people how they would behave if that were going on in their own personal lives. Right, of right. course, some debt is totally sensible. Taking out a mortgage in order to afford a house makes sense. A company that borrows in order to buy plant and equipment and make a productive, useful product, of course, that makes sense. But there are obviously limits. You can't borrow more than you could ever possibly repay. Right. And what I'm saying the arithmetic shows is we're borrowing way more than we can plausibly repay. And really a lot of the other part of this that I was trying to get at a little bit is the, the, the payments for that debt too, right? As they rise, then that becomes a significant portion of the actual budget. Uh, exactly. Right. And it's a vicious circle. As the debt gets higher, the people who are lending to us, the rest of the world, demands higher interest rates. That means the interest payments are higher, as you just pointed out. So that makes the debt worse, and then the whole thing keeps going. And so you end up in a situation like Greece or other countries that have had debt defaults. So how how far away are we from that kind of Grecian moment? I mean, <laughs> so now you're trying to get me to make a prediction. A famous economist said predictions are hard, especially those about the future. Um, but, you know, I suspect where it's not going to happen in 10 years and probably not in 20. But I don't think it's much longer than that unless we change something, unless uh -huh. we introduce modifications to entitlements that slow their growth meaningfully relative to the current path. Yeah. I mean, I, in part, you know, there's, I keep reading about different economists talking about uh, this sort of demographic cliff, um, you know, in, around 2027, 2028, just with, you know, the baby boomers and entitlements mm -hmm. and all those things coming together. Do you think, is, is that something you've looked at closely? And if you could comment on that? Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, we are heading to the point where the major trust funds for the major entitlements are forecast to be you know, empty within sort of five to 15 years, depending on exactly which one we're looking at. And the baby genera boom generation is starting to, or is probably already started to retire and is going to be retiring at a much faster rate going forward. Who uh, you includes me, I think. <laughs> and um, that puts more and more pressure. And the U.S. birth rate is low and if anything seems to be declining. So that means there are fewer and fewer young people who are working paying taxes into these trust funds. So everything seems to be going in the wrong direction. All right. So if we take the political issues out here, which is a big if because the you know political capital is the is the one thing that any libertarian uh, solution probably doesn't have right now um, in either party for that matter. Right. Give me some policy changes that you think would actually help grow the United States economy uh, and you know, potentially kind of overcome the debt with real GDP growth. So I'll sound like a broken record, but I think the single most important thing is to moderate Medicare expenditure with higher ages of eligibility, with larger deductibles, with other sorts of cost sharing so that it's not growing nearly so fast. And similar things, but with less urgency uh, for Social Security. Second, I think that we are spending way too much on foreign entanglements. We don't need to be stationed in Afghanistan or Iraq or many other places around the world. We could reduce 
national defense spending non-trivially by paying more attention to what's actually in our interest to defend the country as opposed to trying to be the policeman uh, around the world. And then last but not least, my, my single favorite is we should repeal drug prohibition. It does not only terrible things to people who want to use drugs, it creates racial animosity, it generates crime, it distorts all sorts of other sort of decisions about policy. And without eliminating drug prohibition, we're not going to fix the opioid overdose. We're not going to change the huge racial animosity that we have. So that would be my third. So I'm curious, uh, the, the third one surprises me a little bit that in terms of the impact that that would have. Is, is part of it the ability to, I mean, even to, to bring, you know, what we, what we have is illegal drugs right now and tax them uh, appropriately or make, you know, create markets that are legit. I mean, what, how, how does that necessarily help uh, the economy grow? In terms of, I mean, helping the economy grow, I guess I can interpret broadly as making the economy better. It means that uh, people's resources we be devoted to not evading the police, to not, uh, they wouldn't be devoted to as much to criminal justice, to trying to stop crimes which shouldn't be crimes. It would mean vastly reduced expenditure on prisons and jails and prosecutors. So um, it's not going to affect the growth rate of GDP. I agree with that. That's a fair point. But I think in terms of having a healthy economy where people are devoted to entrepreneurship and not fighting each other, I think drug prohibition is still quite important. The irony is that a lot of this is so rational that it's hard to sell to a country driven by reality TV and <laughs> sound bites, right? Uh, anyway, this is this has been a very uh, useful conversation, and 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 um, how can we learn, Professor Myron, more about kind of your philosophy, uh, libertarian philosophy, and and you know just get educated more on some of those issues. So I would first point people to the Cato Institute website, which has some of my work, but a lot work by lots and lots of libertarians on the whole range of policy issues. It's just Cato, C-A-T-O dot O-R-G. And if someone uh, really wants to see my views in particular, I have a book uh, that's available on standard websites like Amazon called Libertarianism from A to Z. And that's actually kind of a summary of the course that I teach that you mentioned uh, at the beginning of the show. Oh, fantastic. That's great. Well, thank you very much again for being on Wealth Formula Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. I think Professor Myron is a really smart guy. The only thing I took exception with, the only thing I didn't like that he said was that he assumed that I was a baby boomer. Okay. Did you catch that, by the way? I am not. I was born in 1973, making me very clearly Generation X. And just to be clear, it was Generation X that invented the Internet. Okay? So I just want to get that off my chest. Because when he said that, I was like, whoa, I'm doing this on video now. Are you saying that I look much older than I am? It's certainly possible. I do have a lot of gray hair. But I don't. I think I still pretty much look Generation X. Now, seriously, though, one thing I forgot to ask uh, Professor Myron about, which um, I did look him up on YouTube and saw an interesting video about, was what, you know, at least in his opinion, I don't know if it's the libertarian opinion, uh, what the ideal tax system looks like. 
And I thought it was interesting that he uh, believes in a consumption tax rather than taxing your income, rather than, you know, just saying you earn something, now we're going to take it. Uh, the tax would be uh, flat. It wouldn't be different for anybody. And, and it would be really ultimately based on how much junk you bought, right? I mean, that's really what it would be because it's consumption. It's based on, you know, if you're buying stuff, it would be taxed there rather than in your income, which, you know, the theory is that you would buy less junk and then, you know, you would invest more, uh, which is probably a good idea in general. Although I will say this is that if you're taxing junk and the businesses that are out there produce junk, people will buy less of it if you invest in those businesses. So it is a tricky thing, but it's a um, it's an interesting concept. Anyway, I do want to remind you again that I will be, um, I might not have even mentioned this so f before, but I will be in Dallas uh, on September 14th and 15th at the uh, Real Estate Guys Secrets of Syndication uh, conference, and I'll be on a panel there. Um, it's a good event, especially if you're interested potentially in the business of syndication. Um, if you're interested in aggregating uh, funds, maybe you're thinking about putting money together with some of your colleagues or whatever, and maybe take down some buildings or properties and stuff on your own. Um, it's really a it's really a good event, and 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 I and I think that Robert and Russ. Um, are great guys, and uh, they're good friends of mine. So if you can make it, uh, come out to Dallas with me uh, in September 14th and 15th. Uh, shoot me an email if you want more information on that. Uh, if you guys do make it out there, make sure to introduce yourself to me. Um, let's grab, uh, you know, a, some bourbon or something. You should probably have like a, if, if enough of you are coming, maybe we'll have some kind of wealth formula uh, get together or something. I don't know if you are or not, though. That's the thing. Anyway, that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Safety with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.